Leigh and I are so excited to have a special guest with us today for our third annual pie episode. And that special guest is Kate McDermott, author of Art of the Pie and also creator and head baker at the Pie Cottage. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Welcome, Kate. We're so excited to have you with us. Well, thank you, Kim. It's wonderful to be here. And hi, Lay. It's always <laughs> wonderful to be anywhere where you are. <laughs> oh, thank you. Kate, you know we have frequently referenced you as our pie queen. We so deeply appreciate not only what you have been able to produce for all of us pie lovers, eaters, seekers, and makers in terms of having a really great text that we can work with, but we've we've like called out like, Kate, help us understand how this pie thing works. So yeah, we're we're thrilled to have you. Pies are a spectacularly important part of what we eat and how we eat and how we kind of share ideas. So again, being a little bit of a fangirl here today, but I'm really excited to talk to you. I am a huge pie novice. I've made a few in my lifetime. I would call myself actually a fearful pie maker. So definitely going to sign up for one of your classes next year so I can come experience the joy and the beauty of making pie. I know I've got some questions about pie making and Leigh, you have some questions, too, about what it takes to create a pie cookbook. You wrote in Art of the Pie about some of those early origins of pie, that, that everyone uses dough as a pie holder or as a food holder. Yes, it seems that in the research that I have done over the decades, that every culture has a crust which is filled with something, whether that be shumai or empanadas or hand pies, pasties. It seems that crust and filling is important and very satisfying for us worldwide. In your research and your, your knowledge, do we more universally eat fruit or vegetable pies or meat pies? Or is there any kind of commonality in that vein? Well, I think if we think of pie as almost the original Tupperware, going back to the Middle Ages, the crust, which was called the paste, was not nearly anything like we have today. It was a sturdy carrier for a filling and also considered something that could preserve the filling. There are times when a filling was said to have been able to have been kept for a year what? This is going, you know, centuries ago, and this was the container for it. It was the storage container. I don't think that I would want to have eaten that after <laughs> a year. I'd be worried about a few things. We didn't have some of the ways to store things that we just take for granted now. In terms mm. of sweet or savory, 
It's more that the United States is kind of known as the standard bearer waving that flag for the sweet pies. Mm. Yes, we have chicken pot pies and things that we're, you know, we really enjoy, but we are known for sweet pies in the United States. The earlier times, though, it was the pilgrims who came over on the Mayflower. They also came over with their recipes, and there were apple pie recipes that they that they came over with. You can find those in some of the early cookbooks also. Uh, but really, we're, we're the sweet pie capital of the world, I think. <laughs> you know, I, I had a curiosity about that because I was thinking about Sort of all season, we've kind of been, we've touched on a lot of themes with our cookbooks. One of the themes was this idea of cookbooks memorializing or becoming a, a historical cultural reference point for later generations. I certainly felt that looking at the women's suffrage cookbook, I talked about it in our last episode about joy of cooking as well. And I have this existential question about the prototype pie, because I think when you talk about apple pie to anybody, and there may be variations, of course, you have your classic apple pie with the lattice crust. You've got your Dutch apple pie with more of like the crumbly topping. At least this is what I think of when I think of these types of apple pies, right? Apple turnovers. It's easy for us to imagine that sweet taste of apple and cinnamon and maybe nutmeg. But at some point we have created this universal, I'm using air quotes generously here, sense of what apple pie is. Are those apple pies from when we had the Puritans come to the United States? Are they the same as we're eating today? And is that because of receipts and recipes that we've been able to keep going all this time? Or has there been an evolution in the pie? There, there's an essay that I absolutely love that was written in 1862 by Henry Ward Beecher. And he was like the preeminent preacher of his day. Mm. And this piece called Apple Pie is almost like a sermon to Apple mm. Pie. And he talks about the apples. And it, it really sounds when I read that, that there really wasn't a whole heck of a lot of difference. There was the dough and there were the apples and there were particular apples that were considered, these are pie apples, these are cider mm. apples, these are, you know, and where how, where and how they were stored in the cellar, which is something that we have lost. And the basics that I see in there are that the filling is fruit sweetener, probably some thickener mm -hmm. and some, you know, and some seasoning. And, you know, it really doesn't seem that it has changed. I wasn't there at the first apple pie that it was ever made <laughs> on our shores. But I would imagine that it was apples and sweet apples and baked in mm. a in a dough, you know, mm -hmm. probably with whatever was around. So I know that doesn't really give you much of an answer. No, oh, no, it, it's just discussion, right? None of us are historians, although we will love to pretend like we are. These are the big open-ended questions that I, I really love to ask. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about pie apples, Kate, because now I have a little bit of a story about that. Ages ago when I lived in Ohio, my family went to a huge orchard operation. This is well before I, I moved to Washington State and got like really great apples. And it never really occurred to me before as an urban girl who goes to the store and gets her apples from the grocery store 
I mean, I knew about green apples tasted different from red apples and the abomination that is the red delicious. And so there, and there were signs on the trees in terms of good for hand eating or better for pie making. And it, that's when it dawned on me that some of the apples and fruits that we have are more suitable for baking or cooking or just eating raw hand eating. I loved that term. I actually use it a lot now. What kinds of apples or other fruits do you suggest for baking? What are we looking for? What's suitable? Well, for apple pie, I like to have a variety of apples in there, some for sweet, some for tart, some that hold their shape, and some that don't. And if you are using apples at the store, I just really go around the the bins there at the store and kind of take one of everything. The ones that we see mm. at the store, Brayburn's, Cameo, Fuji, the Golden Delicious, Granny Smith, Honeycrisp. Some are slightly sweet, some are slightly tart, some are sweeter, some are tartar. If you have four, six, seven different varieties, just, you know, pick one of everyone and, and <laughs> put it in the pie. If you are fortunate to have a farmer's market near to you that has someone bringing in the apples that we sort of classify as heritage apples or artisan apples or the heirloom varieties, this is when it kind of gets interesting because, you know, we don't see them that often. And these are, I have favorites of them. You know, I love putting Ashmead's kernel in a pie. It's it's mm. tart, it's juicy, it's crisp. It comes in later in the year. It has almost like a, a little sweet pear flavor. It comes in like in November when you can be eating that. Cox Orange Pippin, that's a great one. Spitzenberg's, Northern Spies, Roxbury Russet is another one. I actually have one of those trees, a little tree that I started from a scion that's in my backyard. There's some really good books out on different mm. apples of their characteristics and what they're great for. One is Rowan Jacobson's excellent book, Apples of Uncommon Character, which features 123 different varieties of apples and their flavor and profiles and baking profiles. So that's great. There's another one, The Apple Lover's Cookbook by Amy Traverso is another another really good one. In terms of fruit, mm -hmm. other fruit, I don't think that there's anything that you couldn't put in a pie. I've been, I don't want to say I've been challenged, but I have been given opportunities to look at a fruit that perhaps I have never considered putting in a pie. For example, I don't know exactly how these are pronounced, feijoa, F-E-J-O-I-A, I believe there are pineapple guavas. They look like small half avocados. Oh, wow. And I thought, okay, let me see what happens. So Knowing that a fruit pie filling is basically made of four things, fruit, sweetener, seasoning, and thickener, I used those four categories and made a pie with this fruit, mm -hmm. and it was fabulous. It was like eating tropical perfume. Oh, wow. You know, it's just like, okay, will it work? I have no idea. I'll give it a try. And I think this is perhaps just one of these use what you have. You got this? Yeah. Okay, let's see what we can do with it. And also, it's really important when you are using your hard-earned dollars to mm. purchase ingredients for pies, the fruit is the star. And if it has no flavor, 
don't waste your money. I say the fruit needs to be of pie-worthy quality. Oh, I like that. Because you, you really can't add flavor, right? You can you season, as you mentioned, you season, you thicken, you sweeten. But yeah, if your apple has no flavor, I mean, you can add a ton of cinnamon, but it's different. It's not going to taste great. All you would taste is cinnamon. You would taste the seasoning. You would taste the sweetener, but it would mask yeah. what little flavor was there. And the seasoning and the sweetener need to exalt the flavor of the fruit, not mask it. Exalting the fruit. I really like that idea, that term. That's really cool. What happens if you are using something very sweet? I mean, are there fruits that are sweet enough that you wouldn't need an additional sweetener? And then what adjustments, if any, do you need to make in that case? Just leave out the sweetener? Do you need to double up on thickener or do anything different with the other ratios of what you're putting in? An excellent question, all of those. So number one, there are fruits that can be sweet enough that you don't need to put any sweetener in or very little. For mm -hmm. example, I have had peaches, cow reds or O. Henry peaches that come from one particular farm, particular farmer I know grows them. It leaves them on the tree until they are of pie worthy quality, <laughs> which means that, that I see gold coming out from the stem rather than green up there mm. and those sometimes those peaches can be so sweet when you take a taste of them that you know the juice is dripping down your chin and you're saying oh my god and that's that's a pie worthy peach but mm. you may not even need to put any any sweetener in there or perhaps just a quarter of a cup mm -hmm. so what and this is true for any fruit, taste it. And then you'll know when I teach classes, I suggest that the pie makers who come to make pie with me hold back on the sweetener and then taste once they have the four things, the fruit, the sweetener, the seasoning, and the thickener in there, then they taste. And if they like it and want to have a second taste, they're there. If mm -hmm. it feels like, mm, I'd like a little a little more sweetener or a little more cinnamon or a little more whatever you're putting in there, a liqueur or whatever, then fine. It's your pie. You are the one who is eating it. A recipe is merely a starting place. <laughs> and then with your own taste, you are the one who fine tunes based on what is that fruit that I'm putting in today need. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of thickener, I was getting ready to teach a weekend of classes with rhubarb, and I was picking up like 35 pounds of rhubarb for the class from a farmer. And he said to me, Kate, when you're making those pies this weekend, be sure and put in a little extra thickener because it's been a rainy spring and this is the first pick. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, my gosh, knowing your farmer and having that kind of information, that is something I would not have thought about until it was brought to my attention, that sure. the just the weather and the care that a farmer puts in it and knows their produce can be the thing that I adjust the ingredients in my pie based on what they're telling me of what they know. 
kind of kind of comes back to that idea of terroir. Yeah. One other thing that I might add is that at one of the farmers markets in Seattle that I used to go to regularly every every Saturday, the University Farmers Market has a tremendous amount of apples that come in from different farmers. So I would run around and pick six apples of this and this and this and this and this and this, you know, and go home with, you know, 22 different varieties of apples, you know, and they'd be, I had one refrigerator that was just for apple storage. And I would write on the bag, the date, the name Mm -hmm. of the apple and Mm -hmm. the farm it came from. Many times I found that the same variety of apple grown on different farms one would be sweeter than the other one. Mm, interesting. So that terroir, it, it does make a difference. In listening to this conversation, I think that there's a couple of things that just really struck me. First of all, the philosophy about tasting the filling first. And I, I think that often mm. we rely so much on a recipe that we forget that we need to taste it as we go because it is our palate that we are baking this, making this for. And I love that you brought that up, Kate, because I think Mm -hmm. that we often forget to do something like that. And the fact that we have so many varieties of apples, and you know, the fact is, is the cool fact is that apples are worldwide. We can grow apples in every one of the 50 states here, and they are grown across the world. So to have this conversation about the apple pie, I think is amazing. I believe that the figure of the varieties of apples that were growing in this country that are documented are 6,000 different varieties. Wow. (laughs) 6,000. And we are limited in the stores Mm. to, what, eight, ten different varieties. And many times Mm -hmm. I believe, I feel that they are chosen for the look, the ease of storage, The apples that we get usually have been in cold storage for quite Mm -hmm. a while. And then, Mm -hmm. and then they're brought out and brought to the stores. So, and it's very true. There are this fruit, which I believe originated in Uzbekistan or something like Mm -hmm. that. There are varieties of it that are worldwide. Apples do not grow true to their seed. So the apple that you will get, if you plant an apple from a seed, really, like Johnny Appleseed, yeah, you will get, uh, it's, it's every, every tree that would come out of that would be, from the seed would be different. Maybe you'll get something great. Maybe you won't. This is why when trees are propagated or when mm-hmm. apples are propagated, it's done by scions. So Bringing an apple to market is a many, many years, sometimes decades-long process of finding the apple. We want this one, okay, the scions of it, and then multiple tastings over the years. How does it grow? And then having enough that this is a, a crop that can be sold as a, you know, I suppose the word is commodity, but individual commodity, an artisan commodity. So anyway, I find all of it quite fascinating. <laughs> I go down rabbit holes very easily. Yes, me too. We will follow. We're in good company. <laughs> we will easily. I actually didn't know that about Apple. So thank you for sharing something new with me. I want to come back for just a second to the idea of ratios. Is that something 
that a novice baker like me should know about? Is there kind of a reliable for three parts this so you can do one part that with adjustments? I understand that, you know, just as we were talking about with sweeteners, you may not want to use the full thrust of your sweeteners. Or how can you tell how much thickener to use if you have a food or, or a component that's especially juicy? Mm-hmm. And or how do you anticipate juiciness when in baking? How can you best plan for an ideal pie in terms of all those components? Well, I can say that this is where, if I may, recipe roulette, excuse me, comes in. Having some tried and true recipes that have ratios mm-hmm. to start with, or if you're lucky to have a you know grandmother who says just you know what we do with this particular fruit or that particular fruit, but having a starting place of a reliable source can give you an idea. I find for myself that the first pie of a particular fruit for that season, each new season that's when recipe roulette comes into play for me. I never know exactly what it's going to be. And it's kind of like just that, that adjusting, does it need more thickener this year? Does it not? And, you know, but there's some, some general guidelines that, that I have that, that I've shared in the books that I have written. So find yourself a reliable pie cookbook or whatever recipe book, or your grandmother's recipe cards in her little metal case, and treasure those, because they probably have a lot of information on there that, that is helpful as you're, as you're starting on the pie way. Thank you. I pulled my, I, I always try to do this. I pulled my family and friends just to kind of find out what we wanted to know about pie. And so I have a question from my sister-in-law, Miranda, who wants to know, quote, WTF is up with blind baking and shell shrinkage. Oh, end quote. Well, yeah, this is a, I was just texting with several people this morning about this very topic because it's right, we're recording this right after Thanksgiving. So it's, it's, it's big on a lot of people's minds right now. So Several things about blind baking, and for those who don't know what that is, is it's pre-baking a pie dough shell, and that would be used then to put a filling in that is not going to have the full bake time or is going to be one that's not going into the oven at all. For example, lemon meringue pie, you would pre-bake, blind bake that shell, and then let it cool, and then you would put your filling in. The thing about blind baking is that there are several, there's some tricks to it to make it work. Everybody has a few and we keep learning. So when you roll out your dough, try and roll it out evenly so you're not stretching. Okay. And then once you get it into the pie pan, all nicely in there, then let it chill for half an hour. And that can be like in the freezer. So that helps with shrinkage. When that dough is in baking, it has no filling in it. It has nothing to hold up the sides. So we need to put in something to take the place of the filling. So you would line it with foil or with parchment paper or with another pie pan. And then you would fill that cavity, that empty cavity, with 
rice, with beans, with pie weights, with sugar. And then you put it into an oven and you bake it for oh, 25 minutes at 800, 425 or so. And then you take it out and very carefully let it cool for just a little bit. And then very carefully take the liner out with the weights and then put it back in, uh, lower the heat to like 375, 350, and then continue letting it bake so that it dries out. It is inherent in the quality of pie dough. It's just the nature of it that there will be some shrinkage always. The only doughs that I don't have shrink on me are gluten-free doughs. There is no gluten strand to (laughs) worry about in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Follow-up question. Can you blind bake before freezing? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's the answer. Fabulous. That that question came from my mother-in-law, Kathy, so I will will let her know. Yes. Yes. Blind bake, let it, let it cool and then protect it. You know, Mm. Uh, Mm. you can freeze it. It, it's obviously going to be best the day that you do it, but if, Mm. you know, do what works for you. Another thing that she might do is to prepare the crust in the pie pan and Mm. freeze it and then blind bake it when she has time. But either way, you can do. Then follow question to the follow-up question from my other sister-in-law, Ramona. Does it matter if you refrigerate versus freeze your pastry dough? If I overfreeze, will it still be as good when it thaws? When you have major pie dough, you will have worked it to have some, it will have some gluten strands in there. The mm-hmm. gluten strands need to relax before it is put into the freezer. So once you have made it, wrap it well, and then chill it for a minimum of 20 minutes so the gluten strands can relax. Then put it into the freezer. Frozen doughs, the rule of thumb is that they last anywhere from one to three months in the freezer. But uh, on an episode of Baking with Julia, when uh, Leslie Mackey, in the episode with her, Julia was asking Leslie all these questions and she asked Leslie, how long can this be frozen? And Leslie is saying it was either one month or three months and I'm going, yes, yes, yes. And then Julia in her incredible way, which I won't try and do her voice, says that she had found a dough in her freezer that was a year old and that she defrosted it and used it and it was just fine. So I think that the thing here is if it looks like it is good, if there's no freezer burn, if it's wrapped really well, then you should be, you can do it for up to a year because if Julia did it, so can we. Right? I mean, yeah. If Seriously, if Julia can do it. My final question from my friend Miriam. Does the temperature of your hands really matter? My grandmother wouldn't teach my mom to make crust because she had hot hands. Your mom was probably a great bread baker then. <laughs> Very possibly. Well, I actually will take a little laser thermometer just by way of... of discovery in my classes and we test the temperature Mm. of people's hands the normal temperature of hands is somewhere in the 90s 
you know, it wow. can go up into the, the low hundreds. That's kind of a little warm, but butter starts getting soft at 59 degrees. If our hands are our tools, which I love making pie by hand because, you know, I never lose my tools. They're right here all the time, my hands. But if I'm working with dough and a fat that gets warm, starts to, to get soft at 59 degrees and my hands are in the 90s or even if they're in mm. the 80s, well, that is an environmental factor in mm. making those doughs. So those words of don't overwork the dough, or as my grandmother would say, don't worry the dough. Don't I like that. Dough. Yeah. I like that a lot. So, <laughs> so just if, if you have warm hands or if it feels that it's getting too hot, well, hold some ice cubes or put your hands in a ice water bath, or you can stop the process at any point. Put that mm. dough into the chill for a while mm -hmm. into the freezer for a few, you know, just for a few minutes to just kind of refresh itself. Or you can also do things like a uh, double bowl with a bowl of ice underneath mm. so that it's keeping everything chilly. I do feel that keeping everything chilly is really important. And as I say, in pie making, in dough making, mm. especially keep everything chilled, especially yourself. <laughs> keep it cool to have hot pie. Thank you. Thanks for answering all, all of our questions. <laughs> Appreciate it. So, Kate, I have some questions specifically about making a cookbook. My first question is, what made you decide to write a cookbook, especially about pie? I can say that it wasn't quite anything that I ever anticipated I would be doing, Lay, nor was teaching pie making anything that I thought that I would be doing. Uh, I started teaching pie making in 2008 and kind of informally at first, and then it morphed very quickly into this crazy event called Art of the Pie, these pie camp day camps that I do. And within the first year of doing that, I was getting inquiries from agents and editors. Would I write a book? And I had my own, uh, <laughs> my own internal view of myself that I was not a writer. And I said, you know, well, thank you very much, but let me get back to you <laughs> on that. You know, never burn your bridges. And so I continued to teach and teach and learn and learn. I learned so much about pie making by teaching. I had come from a teaching background. I taught in the field of music. I was a performer and then a teacher in that. And I sort of feel like if, if you can teach one thing, you can teach anything. But, and I learned something at every single class. So now in 2014, this was like six years into this process, and I had taught thousands of people by then. And, and I get another inquiry from what became my publisher, Countryman Press, uh, which is part of W.W. W. Norton. And I got this email one day and said, we see you're going to be teaching in New York. Would you come and see us? And I looked at the address of where they were, and it said 505th Avenue. And I thought, woo, that's pretty, pretty big there. And so I, I wrote back and said, yeah, I would be delighted to come and, and talk with you. So I, the 
morning after I had taught a class, I walked down Fifth Avenue and actually I stopped in at St. Patrick's Cathedral <laughs> and then went and spoke with what is now my editor. And there were, you know, a couple of people there too. And they just were fascinated by the stories I was telling him about life in my pie journey and life in this little burg that I live in and teaching. And they just kept saying, tell us more stories, tell us more stories. And then at the end, they said, we'd love to do a book with you. So that's kind of how that happened, which is kind of not the ordinary way of submitting uh, you know, you have an idea, you're going to write a book and then trying to find an agent, trying to find an editor. This was, it's almost as if, it's almost as if lay that Pi kind of just said, you're going to write this and some doors are going to be open to you. And I do not take this lightly. I'm very grateful that if it was Pi that opened that door, that the journey is continuing. This is now, uh, how many years into it? We're 2023 20, now. What is that, 16 years, 17 years, 15 years? I don't know how many years it is. I just, I know that when people have said, you know, how many people have you taught? How many pies have you made? I, I think I've taught well over 7,000 people now, and it's tens of thousands of pies. On a holiday like we just came through of Thanksgiving, I receive all of these wonderful text messages and emails and pictures of folks that have come to the classes who are making pies and then have taught their children or their grandchildren who are now making pies. And in some cases, those, the children that they are teaching, if they were, you know, perhaps 12 or something, now they perhaps have children of their own and they are starting to make pies. And that line, that unbroken line of pie makers is just so meaningful to me and I'm so proud to be a part of it. I love the fact that you talk about that pie opened these doors. And obviously we all love pies, but also, and, and I know that our, our listeners can hear this in your voice. You are so passionate about pie and what it can do to open doors, to, to connect us. And the fact that they said, keep telling us stories. And I know that Kim probably is thinking about Edna Lewis because it was similar to her when she went in and, and they were talking about the stories that she was telling her publisher. It was the stories that they wanted to hear. And you have some fantastic stories in your cookbooks. They are more than just cookbooks. It's a diary. It's a diary of life. It's a diary of connection. It's a diary of family and friends. And I think that that's what I love the most about your books is that they are these beautiful storytelling pieces with some really lovely, delicious foods in them. Thank you. The process was uh, something I never, as I mentioned, never envisioned myself doing. I also did not know exactly what I was signing on for because writing a book is, it's quite something. It's a big commitment. So talking a little bit about that process, what did that process look like? Well, it's for me, it's, the first part was I didn't have an agent. And even, even though I was asked to write a book, it was strongly suggested to me uh, by others that I do have an agent and I didn't have one. And 
uh, David Leet was very kind in offering to make a connection to his agent. I had been to dinner with him the night before, uh, and uh, he said, let me make an introduction to my agent. And the next morning I got up and there was an email from her that said, you know, I'll represent you, which is absolutely wonderful. So I then had to learn how to write a proposal, which she midwifed me through. That took four months, you know, with each successive book, that process became faster. But the first one was four months. It took me four months to do that. The proposal, I think, was 80 pages long. It's not just as easy as, oh, write a book and here, put some recipes in. Well, basically, in your proposal, you are mapping out. It's your outline for the entire book. They're buying, your, your publisher is buying a property and they want to know exactly what they're going to get. So every recipe, where the recipe was going to be in the book, all the stories that were going to be in the book, every sidebar that was going to be in the book had to be detailed out in an outline form and then writing samples of some of these chapters along with recipes. And also, why is this book going to be different? Not better, but different than other pie books. After having done that, then the publisher or whoever decides you know, whether they're going to actually buy the property, whether they're going to buy your book or not. Once you get that okay, then the work really starts. As my agent said, whether or not you have that contract, write, write, write. Always write. So I continued to write and got the contract. And I had many recipes because I have taught for so long and I knew how to explain things. What I tried to put down in Art of the Pie was how I teach in an in-person class. So then I'm talking to you and that's how I viewed it. If you can't come to a class with me, Art of the Pie is me coming to you. That process took two years from proposal or two to two and a half years from proposal to holding that book in my hand. You're always thinking about writing. When I started the process, there was rarely a moment in my day or night that I was not thinking about writing. Getting up in the morning, I should be writing this. I should be making this pie again. I should be making sure that the measurements on this are such and such. I need to tell that story. Did I put that in? So you're constantly writing. And towards the end, when you have deadlines, one of my happiest times is pushing the send button. And then there's this feeling of, it's in my editor's court now. I have, I have a week off until it comes back to me with, now we need, you know. I think the biggest surprise for me, Lay, and you'll, you'll understand this one, because you were involved in this process, working on the photo shoots for both Art of the Pie and Home Cooking. And... In Art of the Pie, the Friday before the final proposal was due, my agent said, well, now I need a uh, photo memo. I said, what's a photo memo? She said, I need a list in Excel form of every photo that's going to be in the book and where it's going to be. And I was like, oh, 
Okay. So I went through that weekend and went through every single recipe. And there was a finite number of recipes that we had contracted for with Andrew Scrivani, who did all the photos for all three books. And so went through recipe by recipe, thinking chapter by chapter, what needs to be seen? And does it need to be a beauty shot? Does it need to be a process shot? And that was the roadmap that we used for Art of the Pie. I think I was more nervous about that than anything. Because <laughs> I, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm not a photographer at all. I've picked up a few things from all of you who do work in that field, but I am not a photographer. I think that that's a really good point to make because I think often when people pick up a book, they look at all of the pretty pictures. But to your point, you did. You had to go through each of those recipes and say, first of all, will this photograph well? Will it tell the story that I want it to tell? How does it fit with the rest of the photographs that are in this book? So... In addition to having to write these stories and make everything cohesive, your images also have to do that. One of the biggest things that I wanted to make sure that people felt in the book was that they can do this. That's very important to me, that you can make a pot. You can do this. So I was very particular. I did not want my face or my eyes to be seen in the book. There's one picture in there that has me holding a, a slab pie, a big pie in a, a lasagna pan with a crisp topping. And I said, I want my face to be cut off right underneath my eyes. And the reason is I found this out through teaching. When I teach in person and I'm looking at you, you're looking at me and not the pie. So when I teach, I'm looking down at the mm. table at the pie. So guiding you to where your eyes, I would love to have your eyes be, is on the work on the table. So in this picture, I did not want you looking at me. I wanted you to feel that you could be the one holding that pie and making that pie. Not me, but this is you. This is your book. This is you. Here's here's what I'm saying to you, that you are here. I'm sharing with you the words, put your eyes down there on the table, get your hands in the dough and make your pot. That's a cool point. It is. And you know, Kate, one of the other things that I love that you tell people, and I've heard this so often from you, is people will say, hey, Kate, I made your such and such pie. And you do, you look straight at them and say, that's not my pie, it's your pie. You made that pie. And I love that you give that ownership back to the maker. Mm. Thank you. I think that's important. When people have come into classes too and say, you know, like, can I make a, a dough like my grandmother did? Or, you know, my, and my uncle Frank, he made the best blah, blah, blah. You know, can I do that? And I say, well, maybe, but how about you make your own? How about you make your own pie? And I think taking that, expectation that it's going to be somebody else's and owning or accepting or being open to that your pie is going to be perfect. I say that our pies, like life, they're perfectly imperfect. And even if it doesn't turn out quite like you expect, 
you know, it's perfect in its imperfection. I remember one time I was getting filmed with someone. We were just sharing uh, pie making together. It was being filmed. And the last pie, you know, one of them didn't turn out quite like I wanted it to in the oven. So I said, you got a lasagna pan there. And so we turned it into the lasagna pan and kind of took a spoon through it, just mixed it up some. And they took it to a potluck as a crisp or a crumble. And they said there wasn't a bite left. <laughs> it's all in how you view it. You know, if it doesn't turn out to be exactly what you think it was going to be that day, well, just reframe it. <laughs> I want to jump in because I actually found a, a, a moment of real inspiration pie aside in Art of the Pie. So I'm a pretty driven person. I work a lot. And I definitely run on the perfectionist streak of the side of life. You're talking about pie contests. This one first sentence meant so much to me. I've never entered a pie contest. I may someday. I might not. But I really appreciated the sentiment in this line. Quote, it takes a lot of courage to put the labor of your heart and hands out on a table where it is picked apart and critiqued, end quote. And for me, I felt like I could feel a lot of that in anything that you do. Sometimes we make pie for ourselves, but I think it's more fun when you make pie to have and to share with other people, to come back to the pie metaphor directly. And I especially love the excerpt about making pie for people in need. What I really liked was that reminder that it doesn't have to be perfect if it's done with intent and with love and with care. Who cares if it's called a crisp or a crumble or a pie? I just wanted to say that I appreciated that side note about perfectionism because we get so driven, especially something about pies. We want that perfect flaky crust or that perfect filling. And we forget that at the end of the day, hopefully it's about sharing it and just enjoying that labor of love. I think you're so right. That is the most important ingredient in anything we do is doing it from your heart. And I feel that I have been so fortunate in my life to have had careers that I have been able to use my heart and my hands, both in music and in the culinary arts. I just, I am I'm so fortunate that maybe what I do doesn't harm anyone and maybe brings a little beauty to the world. Kate, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a fun conversation to have. We always have great conversations, but I'm so glad that we were able to do this, ask some questions that I know that our listeners have, and talk a little bit about the process of the cookbook. But you also teach, and you had mentioned this a couple of times, and I know that you're now looking at 2024 for that schedule. Where can people sign up for your classes? Well, the 2024 schedule just opened registration for the virtual Bake with Kate full year series and also for the winter quarter classes. And those can be found at katemcdermott.substack.com. And if you're listening to this after 2024, Kate, I'm sure will continue to teach these classes. So make sure you get on her mailing list so that you can be informed about when the next classes are. Thank you, Leigh. I just love sharing the craft of crust. I just want people to be happy and make pie and share it. Mm. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our Table Talks About Food and Recipes community on Facebook. 
We want to hear from you about your favorite pies and your favorite cookbooks. And so you don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could just spare a couple of minutes away from the pie, maybe once you slide it into the oven and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify, we would really appreciate it. It really helps us to grow the As We Eat community, and we always have room for at least one or 20 more at the table. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. This is a monthly collection of stories and favorite features and recipes touching on a theme. And for December, we are bringing you some stories ready for the holidays. You can subscribe now or give a gift subscription so you don't miss a single tasty bite at asweeat.substack.com. And don't forget to order your 2024 cookie calendar. Thank you. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project, serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion. Ba ba da da ba 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 da ba ba